Welcome to Break Free, Mindful Living for a Busy Lifestyle. Hey y'all, welcome back. So today is going to be part two of our conversation with Ryan Winters, who's a mental health counselor. And in part two, we dive into some more practical ways on how to manage your anxiety through mindfulness. As last week, just as a recap, we talked about more of the science behind it and kind of what's happening with your body when you feel anxious. And so where we jump in on today's recording is right when Cody was talking about how he was feeling anxious, but he was working on his anxiety but that kind of led him into a depression of sorts. And so this is Ryan kind of, you know, bringing it all together of why that happens. And so I really hope you enjoy today's episode. And just to recap the, the whole idea of the anxiety leading to depression. I mean, that sounds like a pretty typical actualization of your, of your, you know, your threat response. Because like um, in trauma, there's a similar sort of thing where when I work with clients, I have to help them find a space where they're comfortable because actually there's like a boiling point where like, yeah, things are, you know, your your amygdala is over-regulated. I mean, not over-regulated, over- uh, Overactive. (laughs) Thank you. Overstimulated. (laughs) Overstimulated. Thank you. That's the word. (laughs) Both much better than what I just said. So (laughs) so, um, then there's a freezing point and the freezing point is the other problem, which is you're too relaxed with, with those who have trauma. They actually, they find that relaxation becomes triggering. It becomes a negative Mm -hmm. space because they have to learn, their amygdala has to learn that it's actually safe there as well. Because they were taught maybe when they froze in that moment of a traumatic experience that they were not okay. Even when they were like calm because their body released so much cortisol to try to calm them down. It actually caused a problem where the brain can't recognize cortisol as a good thing or the calming effect as a good thing. You know, that, that situation with the depression coming along on, a, on top of the anxiety, once you felt better about the anxiety, um, that's pretty typical, you know, because it's just, you're, you're trying to make sense of something that is upsetting. And I mean, that makes sense to me that they, they tend to be really good bedfellows, anxiety and depression. They are like best friends. And I don't, I don't know always what the, um, the outcome is for whenever I work with clients and we do anything with anxiety, but I find with depression, it's almost always small steps. You know, it's always that kind of thinking of like, take a little bit at a time because usually depression comes from like how you're viewing the world and taking big steps when you're not in a good place is so hard. So you take smaller steps and you make them meaningful and really powerful steps, each one, but small ones. Um, Martin Seligman. I love this guy. This guy's one of my favorites. Um, He was like 1990, 1992. He came out with a book about like optimism and positive thinking and how it it kind of is super important. And they looked at, if I'm remembering correctly, the, like the way that uh, someone experiences an event. So like, if you think about an event that happened, like, Oh, that person stopped talking to me and walked away. You start thinking about like, how did, how did I do like, what did I do wrong? 
you know, yes. you start thinking maybe um, what, what sort of, uh, you know, thing am I always doing wrong? So it becomes very stable over time. So it's not just one thing you did just now. It's something you're doing like always. And then maybe you like start thinking like, I always do this and I do this everywhere and everywhere I go, I'm constantly doing this and I'm so awkward and everyone hates me, you know, like it's just this snowball effect and that, and he noticed that with pessimistic mindsets, that tends to be one of the big problems is we teach ourselves to pay attention to the pessimistic version of ourselves and the thoughts about ourselves that are pessimistic. And then he looked at the optimistic and he said like, okay, well, how do optimistic people view themselves? What are their big, you know, positive things? And what they do is they look at like a negative event that happens or a situation. They'll look at it as like an, as something that's like, oh, it wasn't me. It's external to me is this other person who did whatever. So like maybe they walked away from me because they have something else they need to do. And that's, that's it. That's where they end it. It's not about the internal experience. Oh, it must be my fault. So they, they put it on the external. And then optimistic people also tend to be less stable about it. So it's not over time. It's like, oh, this is this one time this happened. And then it's only happened once and it happened today. And then they forget about it. So finally, they don't try to put it out to that global space. They make it a specific explanation for that moment. And then they move on. So those are the two types of mindsets. And sometimes anxiety or depression kind of focus on the pessimistic mindset and they just kind of get stuck there. Not so much because of something that they've done wrong. It's just maybe that's what they, you know, time has gotten you too. I know I, I have those issues too sometimes where like I walk around and I make it about me, you know, mm -hmm. and it's definitely not, you know, <laughs> it's like right. me just thinking like, oh man, I said that was so stupid what I said. They'll never talk to me again. And like, no it's fine. Like they'll talk to me again. I'm still charismatic enough. Like <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> like, you know, you have to kind of build yourself back up. And I think that optimism versus pessimism mindset, that's just as powerful as the mind body kind of connection too. like the prefrontal cortex. Once you like calm down the amygdala, then you can focus on the thoughts. It's almost like through all of these different issues with, you know, the anxiety and depression and then like focusing on the pessimistic side of things, you have to find that little thing that breaks you free out of that. Because I think a lot of people in the, and me included in the past is that I was just expecting things to change, something to be different, something for me to latch on to. It, it wasn't something that I wanted to take action for. I was basically, I was waiting for my external things to change to where I can adapt to that instead of me adapting, you know, me changing and then everything else adapting around me. And I mean, I could be a little bit of a mix of that, but like I was waiting for some type of external change to be like, okay, this can happen. I know this is a rabbit hole too, but if, speaking of a pessimistic person, like they might not want to do something because they'll say something along the lines of, why would I even do that when I know it's not going to end badly? Or why even do that if this is going to happen? So, like, taking that that step it, from the beginning is, you know, in my or in their own head, because it's just like you so thinking in that loop, which now you're not doing anything, not taking the action, which will lead you further down into depression and anxiety is going to just come up and join the party. Yeah. Yeah, it's that stinking thinking that they used to talk about in Alcoholics Anonymous and all yes. the different sort of, uh, you know, Narcotics Anonymous. And it's that it's, that's what it is. It's it's not allowing yourself any leeway, any room, because it, the future is always a, a disaster. 
you know, and they always say that anxiety is future focused and depression is past focused. I, that's not always true, but I, I think right. that's a pretty good call. Um, and that's why mindfulness yeah. is so pa- uh, powerful is because you're focusing on the now and you have to let go of the future and the past because you can only be approximate to the now. So you get rid of all those what ifs and the what ifs are, you know, the skiffs that we all wish we could go sailing on. Right. You know, they're, you know, if you could, you, we'd all go sailing. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's the saying. I was like, I know, I know the saying, um, <laughs> but, but yeah, the, there's definitely a sense that, uh, whenever you fall into anxious thinking, there's an expectation that something's going to pull you out of it. But the empowering part is realizing that you have the power to do it. And that's not always easy, but once you figure that out, it's really intensely strong. And I don't want to be cliche. That is something that has to come within you. Whenever I needed to change, you know, people would tell me all the time, like, you know, you need to do this, you know, like we want to help you. We want, you know, like we want to do this, but like nothing anybody ever told me at that time, even though they were all right, never happened until I made action with myself. And it was all about me getting out of my comfort zone, which like I said previously, my comfort zone was skewed. Yeah. Comfort zone is called a comfort zone for a reason, right? It's, it's comfortable and yeah, no one wants to leave that. I don't want to leave my, I love my comfort zone. Yeah. All right. <laughs> just, and just like how comfort food isn't normally the healthiest thing to eat. <laughs> yeah. I just had some fried chicken before this. So. <laughs> <laughs> Can I identify. Yeah. So how do you, whenever you're, meeting with your clients and stuff and they're having those negative thought patterns or those anxious thought patterns, what are some ways that you tell them to break that thought pattern and switch it to that positive mindset? Cause I always find that that's one of the hardest things is taking that first step to make that switch. Cause a lot of people don't know where to start with that. Oh, that's, that's one of those questions where like I can either go really long winded or short winded. So I'm going to try to do a little shorter. Uh, <laughs> So basically it's dependent upon the person and what they will react to as far as a treatment plan. So like some folks would prefer, let's do more of an existential kind of thing where we're looking at values and meaningfulness and we approach the thoughts as how meaningful are they? How much are they adding to my values? How are they helping me with responsibility in my life? Are they blocking me from being responsible? So that's like the existentialist theoretical side, which I use on occasion with anyone, usually someone who's further along in life, I'll use that. Um, because they want to go a little deeper. Uh, and then sometimes it's just really simple to use cognitive behavioral therapy, which is all about practice makes perfect. So you challenge the thoughts, which they would call distortions. Not They're not negative or positive. They're just distortions of reality. And then you go into the thought and you actually label the thoughts and say like, this is my thoughts about this. And these are my thoughts about this. And you try to get to every negative thought that could possibly come along the line of that snowball effect. At some point, you know, another thought comes up or another thought. And usually there's like one main thought that's like your really powerful, like intense negative thought that's there. Or see, I'm already calling it a negative <laughs> distortion, distortion distortion that's there. And what you do is you challenge it and challenge it and challenge it. Or you can reframe it. And, and take it and kind of do some like mental judo and turn it around towards the positive and see all the positive sides you're missing. And then it's the repetition of practicing doing that yourself. You instill that coping mechanism in the person by having them practice it. 
at home in session, uh, you know, in the car, you know, thinking about negative things and saying, what is it about this thought that's true? And having them really challenge it the same way they do in session, outside of session eventually. And that can be really powerful because the practice of doing that in conjunction with maybe some body exercises, you know, they, they combine to help your body to calm down and then your mind does its prefrontal cortex thing and you can sit there and challenge those thoughts and really say, okay, no, I'm, I'm external, I'm internalizing an external situation. I'm, uh, you know, making something global that only happened this one time and you just focus. It was a one-time thing. You know, you do all those things to kind of go back almost to like the Seligman way of looking at the optimism and, and pessimism and saying, am I being pessimistic? Am I being optimistic? How do I want to live? Is this how I want to live? Um, a lot of those kind of things to come up. So I find that's more of like an eclectic, like you kind of grab from everything, you know, as a therapist, I, I basically am like, Hey, what can I give you? Like, what is going to work for you? Like, do you want to journal and write these things down? What works for you? Like, do you, do you prefer to read? You don't like to write? Let's find you some books where you can read about this and then we can talk about it and process your thoughts. It's kind of, how do I put this? It's kind of like if you ever make clothes for someone. Like you have to measure them out and figure out what kind of style are they and what kind of look do they want to have and how do they want to express themselves to the world. And in, in a counseling session, that's my job is to kind of be a tailor of their thoughts and say like, okay, well, like, how do I want to dress, dress your, up your anxieties and with you? And how do I want to help you see this in the mirror and help you move past it? Cause that's the hard part is the moving past into the new type of being, which is not. I mean, it's not easy. It's that comfort zone moving. You're moving out of it. Early on in therapy, the reframing, the distortion is, you know, one of the ways that I cope personally cope with things. And I find like in early stages of being, you know, mindful and, and learning more about myself and, and, and the anxiety that I face, it was, how can I say this? You know how you're saying treatment for anxiety and depression and all of these it's kind of like an eclectic bag of what works for, for that, that person and we would try things out and for me personally what it felt like is i exist as this best way i can say it is me myself my soul my entity that i'm in right now and what happens is whenever i am going to therapy or listening to a podcast like this that have to deal with the mind and body connection i feel like there is a second person that's trying to become that person you know so it's almost like i'm not necessarily trying to fix me at the time i'm trying to become the version of that self that i want and then that can kind of get in the way a little bit so that offers me more anxiety but when i recognize what's happening it's a little bit easier for me to do that but for me whenever i am getting treatment or whenever i'm doing things it feels wrong because it doesn't feel like me because i'm trying to be that version of me and yeah. You know, like just trying to release that that barrier is what I work on in, in my life is try to make that barrier non-existent, try to become one with myself and not this version that doesn't is easier and more susceptible to hearing advice or to trying new things compared to what I am right now in this entity, this body. That explanation is awesome. Like, can I get that on a recording? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Good thing we're recording. We can handle that yeah. for you. <laughs> yeah. 
No, that that's a great explanation of it. It's kind of like that other person telling you to move or the or you know vice versa telling you don't move you know and keeping you from being able to move because whenever i'm trying to frame a distortion say you know like let's rationally think about this it feels like i'm talking to somebody else in my head i'm not talking to myself i visualize myself talking with somebody else that's how it feels right now and my journey is trying to lead me to where i'm one yeah that is really well said and then I, I was thinking, you know, that's another thing. I do use mindfulness a lot uh, in session because I think sometimes there's a conversation with yourself where everything's too loud and mindfulness mm-hmm. kind of helps quiet the loudness of, like I said, that future thinking and past thinking. So you're just focusing on your body and your mind and um, also non-judgmental. I think that word is mm. very undervalued in our society. Yes, it is. Uh, the act of being non-judgmental in the moment of the here and now is, is I mean, it's, there's a reason it's been practiced for thousands of years. You know, it, it does something uh, that's very deep and it can be very spiritual. Uh, but really, I mean, it's also very pragmatic, too. I mean, it, to be non-judgmental is a practice that if you do it over and over through time, that it, there's studies that have shown that you will begin to practice non-judgmentalism out of your um or non-judgmental thinking out of your mindfulness practices so it it's very much something that's beneficial like through the entire uh portion of being a human being instead of just in those meditative moments you know now i do want to ask something that was brought up whenever you say non-judgmental and this kind of go hand in hand whenever you know, you hear the sayings, just let things go or whatnot, being non-judgmental. That does not equate to an indifference of everything, or does it? Mm. That's that's what I'm trying to understand. That's a good question. I think it's dependent upon how you want to practice it, and you have to decide that with, with your therapist. But ultimately, the original terminology is like, um, there's something called train spotting, uh, that's done. Basically, it's uh, this this exercise where the person will imagine a train, and maybe the thoughts are on the train, and they come through your mind, and they're not, you know, you're not your thoughts. You know, that's a that's a big idea of it. You're objective. You're outside. You're looking at your thoughts and recognizing I am not one with my thoughts. They're just thoughts. You know, and then you let the thought come through, and you decide if you want to let that train go and just keep moving, or do you let it circle around for a little bit? kind of hang out and then you let it go how do you want to do it and you're in control of letting go of thoughts because just that act of recognizing that you are not your thought is powerful enough to help you let it go sometimes so as an example of of like mindfulness as far as like you know the fact that non-judgmental thinking everyone assumes that it's about the fact that you're not making a decision on it um and the reality is you, is you are, you're always making a decision of whether or not you want to keep a thought or not. So, I mean, that is a judgment, mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. you know, right. so it, it's, you're doing both in a way. Yeah. I think that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where it was thinking about it different, where you actually do have control over it and it's not your external world that has control over you and how, you know, you, paying attention to the thoughts and having that thought train and stuff in it, the thoughts are not you and having that distinction of what you actually have control over versus what you don't and just empowering yourself to make that judgment call without being judgmental. Yeah. (laughs) That's 
that's it. It's uh, I think the psychology term is locus of control. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's the one. And it's, you know, who's in charge of this? Who's the conductor on this train? You know, and as a, I also like that example, like you're on a train and then the thoughts come on and each mm. thought is just a, a passenger that's allowed to get off or on. And but at no point are any of these passengers you. And I think that's one of the problems with thoughts is we we absorb thoughts as if it's a thought, it must be it's from me. So it must be me. It yes. must be mm-hmm. representative of me. And that also goes back to when we were talking about watching the news and all these external things coming at you. It's like yeah. you have the thoughts about whatever's happening, but chances are you probably just absorbed whatever message they were trying to give you. And it's not necessarily your own. So being aware of that and just having that, uh, what's the word, like mental capacity, awareness, awareness to actually have that distinction and be like, okay, well, I'm having these thoughts. They don't sound like my own, but it's not me. Like that is not, that's not who I truly am on the inside. So therefore, why do I hold on to that? But being able to actually figure out how to let that thought go. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really hard also because a lot of times our thoughts are kind of like, they come out of left field. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, especially sexual thoughts, which make people really uncomfortable. <laughs> um, so, you know, it can just be really disarming to try to say, oh, well, I'll just let that go. You know, and like you're, maybe you're sitting in like a meeting or something like, <laughs> right. or social, you know, and it's like, oh God, you know? So, I mean, you know, but that's the thing is like, w- then we judge ourselves. Right. And so yeah. we walk away being like, oh, I'm that thought. I'm that negative thing I thought about, you know. You, during Halloween, it gets really bad, I find, actually. People tend to think these horrible things because they're almost primed by, like, all this, like, uh, slasher films and things like uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> but I find people tend to be a little more on edge uh, during during this time of year, actually. That's fascinating that it's around Halloween. But, I mean, I guess it makes sense with more horror films and different things like that of what they're being exposed to. Yeah, it just depends on if you find it cathartic. Some people find it really cathartic to watch terrible things because they're like, well, at least that's not happening to me. You know, like, <laughs> it just depends on how you absorb it. Well, mm-hmm. I don't like watching terrible things, but I, I can't say I have an affinity to, like, like ghost films and stuff like that. Like, I like to be kind of, well, let's let's rephrase that. I'm used to being on edge. Mm. Okay. So like whenever I'm watching a suspense movie, like ghost stuff and like, I love supernatural things, but like that, that feeling of nervousness, it's kind of, it's kind of cool because it's a way of like, I, I know it's going to be suspenseful. So it's a way of controlling how I feel right now where like my baseline is, okay, I'm, I'm good because I'm watching a, I'm watching a suspense film. So it is all right for me to be nervous right now. You know, oh, so it gives me, yeah. it gives me that satisfaction of being at that, that line. It's like approved nervousness. It's yes. it's fine. Like everyone else is too. We're all in this together. Right. If you, especially if you're watching if you're watching alone, you know, that's yes. different, right? <laughs> <laughs> you're watching with other people, you can be like, Oh yeah, everyone around me is kind of Right. So I, f- I fit in now. Yeah, that makes mm. a lot of sense. Yeah. And also, you know, if it, if it is based off of fear, right? It's the amygdala. So like what happens is as soon as your fear peaks then your body's like oh let me release that nice relaxing thing so you're actually probably enjoying the relaxation after the fear as well as the fear itself absolutely a bit of both and you don't realize this is happening whenever it's happening but it's it really just came to light during this conversation (laughs) it's those self-realizations that you have about yourself whenever you actually talk aloud 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that that's the, the power of talk therapy, which is like the name of my next book. Right. But I mean, like it seriously <laughs> <That's awesome>. is, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> you should probably do that though. <laughs> <laughs> but talk therapy is really fascinating because um, it's actually found that if like, if someone has like a, uh, not even a severe, maybe a moderate diagnosis, the combination of talk therapy with, if they're taking a medication actually is more uh, promising than, just talk therapy or just medication alone. So it's the combination sometimes because what the medication does is like, it'll take the top off of the, if it's anxiety or depression, it'll take that, the hard edge off and then allow for the person to be able to, to have that prefrontal core. I keep saying this, but the prefrontal cortex will be able to have that moment to, to be able to talk and actually, you know, access things and, and figure out if their distortions are really um, distortions or not. It's about battling your amygdala and your cortex. It's just, you know, when your amygdala is the one that's running the show the entire time, you know, your cortex, your logical portion of your mind is just like in the bleachers just watching the game. And it's time for your cortex to say, hey, I have a say in this too. Yeah. And when you talk out loud and you and you, your mental capacity is used to actually form words, it's kind of like it literally makes your brain slow down enough to where you have to logically move your mouth and make words come out of your mouth and it makes makes whatever's in your head real to you and it's like sometimes when you say something out loud no matter how real it feels to you inside when you say it out loud it's like wait a second <laughs> you know like that was completely yeah. illogical yeah yeah well actually the that part of your uh, uh it's on the left side it's bro the brokers i think it's called brokers area and mm -hmm. that's what controls verbal uh you know communication and and what happens is yeah the second the amygdala is upregulated the Broca's area is actually affected they've done fmri scans that show what happens and it's yeah anytime you're you have any trauma especially but anytime you have anything affecting your amygdala it messes with your Broca's area for verbal communication so it's actually yeah it makes sense yeah. right? it's wow. weird but yeah you know, i was actually thinking while y'all were talking about that of you know, my experience recently in this past year of going through the trauma of having my house destroyed and all this stuff and um, having to get on anxiety medication and how I did that. But I also had the portion of verbalizing it and talking about it with people and, you know, bringing those two sides together and really having the mindfulness practice and meditations and really going you know, deepening my yoga practice and doing all these things. And I mean, it was just something I did intuitively. It wasn't, you know, I didn't necessarily go to therapy or any of that, of that although I probably should have and probably still should go, <laughs> but, um, it, no judgments, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, I probably would have moved through a lot of things a lot faster than I did, but it was the journey that I just, I went on, you know? And so, but having, both of those together of having the medication, taking that edge off, allowing me to even process anything that happened. It just makes so much sense that it was both because for a while I'm like, well, the medication didn't do anything. I don't know why I was even on it, you know, but it, it makes a lot of sense that it actually did help me to get into that space where I could actually use meditation and breath work and all the yoga that I did to actually come out of it and be able to get off the medication and all of that. And it just goes back to, it's so funny. This is such a theme in my life of, I always tend to think it's 
either or where it's this way or that way, but it's so much more of an and that everything is connected and you use everything together and it's nothing is nothing happens that doesn't impact something else. And so it's all connected. So using the traditional therapies, medication, mindfulness, yoga, meditation, all these things together, that's how you really get to the next level. And that's how you release a lot of the trauma and anxiety and depression and getting past all of that is coming to the realization that you can use all of them together and it doesn't have to be one or the other and one's not right. One's not wrong. It really is just what tools can you use to get that end result that you want? It's kind of like what you were talking about with how you approach with your clients. It's what, here's all the tools that I have, which ones make sense for you? Yeah. It, I mean, that was awesome. <laughs> this is a really, this is a really good uh, kind of capstone on it all because that's it. It's, it's really much more about the person finding that space where they can allow themselves to heal and figuring out what are those tools in my tool belt that I can use to heal me. And if you can't open space to, to use the tools, then you can have the tools, but if you're not using them, they're just kind of there. But using all those different things together, that sort of integrative approach of seeing the mind-body experience, using mindfulness, like all these different sort of capstones. And I mean, there's even more things like for trauma, like you can use um, EMDR, which is uh, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which that is not something we're going to talk about today. But <laughs> it is an interesting topic. I'll, yeah, I love that stuff. Yeah. If, if you want to talk about it again, just let me know. We can but, definitely uh, do that. <laughs> another time but it's definitely you know it's about like what tools do you want to use and then like you said i I think you nailed it it's kind of just doing it and finding Mm -hmm. a way to get to that next step of like making the decision to do it and there's so many obstacles that can get in the way but ultimately when you need it enough you'll find a way through those obstacles you'll make it make sense Mm -hmm. i'm so glad y'all shared these things with me by the way thank you so much for being vulnerable and sharing these things with me today i appreciate it you're welcome and thank thank you for listening to it It is my pleasure and my privilege so i think this has been such a fascinating conversation and we've covered so many different topics so we'll definitely have to have you on here again to kind of go into some of the more details of different topics that we just kind of touched upon here and there because i think that it would be really helpful for our audience to hear some of those as well um so how can people find you if you know they're wanting to get in touch with you? Uh, the easiest way is to go on our, our website, which is connectedcounseling.life. And there's a number there that you can call to set up an appointment if they'd like to see me for counseling or if they have any questions, want to see one of our other counselors. We do also have play therapists that work with younger children. And we also um, work with a very... Uh, diverse set of issues so it's not just the ones that i work with so yeah definitely that's the easiest way and then i mean even if you search on psychology today for me under ryan winters i'm the only ryan winters there which is really unique that never happens uh there's always at least seven ryan winters in the (laughs) tri-state area it turns out i know we're based in louisiana but we do have uh, listeners throughout the country where are you based at ryan well i am in lafayette louisiana and uh i i also do telehealth i can do telehealth for anyone in the louisiana uh state but i cannot do telehealth outside of the state because i can only 
do it with those in the state because of my licensure. I would have to get a license in their state to be able to work with them in in that wherever they might be. So I'm sorry I can't help you as well, but uh, you know, <laughs> come to Louisiana, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, and you can find our website at www.mindfullybreakfree.com. And if you have any questions, you can always email us at insights at mindfullybreakfree.com. And if you have trouble getting in touch with Ryan or you want some more information, just reach out to us and we'll definitely give that to you as well. Absolutely. And we always appreciate the feedback. The feedback from y'all has been incredible. And look, we we continue to do the show um, and it just every single day I wake up and receive messages and see how or get told how how much people enjoy being on this journey with us. And I can't thank y'all enough and be more grateful for the opportunity for y'all to hear our voices. We will talk to y'all next time. Y'all have a good one.